Well, if you give a party, don't lock the door Turn out all the lights Cause if you don't let my boys inside It's going to be a fight Well, we started out this morning We're going to rack some heads Some names know that to call the heat And now we're laying dead Well, if you give a party, don't lock the door Turn out all the lights Cause if you don't let my boys inside It's going to be a fight Greetings, Party Crashers. You're listening to a new episode of Crashing the Party with Mark and Miriam. We'll be playing records like usual during the first hour of the show, digging deep into the vaults with doo-wop and vocal group action like you've never heard before. And in the second hour, we will be featuring part two of our exclusive interview with none other than Val Shively, the kingpin behind Rhythm and Blues R&B Records in Fantastic Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and one of the founding fathers of record collecting as we know it. Madman and wonderful guy. We're going to be talking with Val, so stay tuned for both parts of our show. Let's go! If you want my loving, you gotta love me too. Yeah, if you want my hugging, you gotta love me too. I ain't giving up no See nothing there. All the cats say she is fine. 
around town about to lose their mind. Gee, I feel so unnecessary. Call me a brand new baby. Gee, I feel so unnecessary. I'm crazy about my honey. Well, I'm going down to New Orleans. Get me one of those Creole queens. Going down to New Orleans. I'm back to make myself a king Well, G.I. feel so unnecessary Call me a brand new baby feel so unnecessary I'm crazy about my honey Go, go, go! Say a fucking melody. I feel so unnecessary. Call me a brand new baby. Feel so unnecessary. I'm crazy about my energy. Well, I'm crazy about my
says he's just a cousin of mine. Sauce, whoa, sauce, don't hand me that apple sauce. Get a call from a gal and ease today. For a friend of a friend is really great. She's through the mold, but Saturday night. You'll fancy something that the fish won't bite. Sauce, whoa, sauce, deliver me from that apple sauce. The Jade singing about a topic that is woefully underrepresented in the history of popular music, and that's applesauce. Oh, yes. And that was recorded for Christie Records in 1959, in case you were wondering. We were, and we're happy to hear it. (laughs) And before that, Boom Baby by the Rennells, or Rannells. I think it's Rennells. And that was on Boss. Before that, the Saigons did Honey G. I think it's interesting that they named themselves after a city in Vietnam. And it was recorded in 55, so we were in there, but we, it wasn't a complete disaster yet. Wow, that's yeah. weird. Mm-hmm. And we started that set with the highlighters. I Ain't Giving Up Nothing, and that was on Celeste. And they also recorded for VJ, Heiko, and Zircon. Well, that was a fine set. Uh, I'd like to hear the Midwest getting get some play big time. And I know we always pay attention to it, but oh boy, uh, there was so much going on there. And let's take off with Jackie and the Starlights. And here's an unreleased track that was comped by uh, the fine people at Relic when they did a great collection on Jackie's song several years ago. It's a tough album to find now, but if you can find it go on and get it i guarantee you you'll love every single song on it let him go jackie rue Sit down and cry. Oh, tell him about me and tell him what I said. When you're ready, you can come on back to me. Back to me. Oh, 
pushed you and I said Don't you push my girl I still remember I still remember When you took your finger and placed it on my lips and went Shh I still remember Too young to go steady Jackie and the Starlights, Jackie Roo. Uh, so many great songs and uh, going from the doo-wop realm and into early soul in Philadelphia. Uh, hanging out at the local record store, of course, uh, that would be the Shively Mansion. <laughs> yeah, over at R&B Records and uh, ran into this guy there who uh, got into a conversation with me about Jackie and the Starlights and said that uh, he had seen Jackie as a young man at the Uptown Theater there and I pulled out the Relic album on Jackie and the Starlights and Don Folletti, who wrote the fantastic liner notes, which he wrote all of the great liner notes on all of the great uh, Relic albums, uh, pretty much so, I think, uh, describes that show in 1962, said that Georgie Woods had brought him down there, and originally it was James Brown who was headlining, and Ike and Tina Turner, and the Flamingos, and uh, by the second night, it was determined who had completely stolen the show the first night, and Jackie and the Starlight were the headliners so that shows what kind of a power that Jackie Rue had over his audience so at any rate we listened to Let Him Go which was an unreleased track uh, kind of uh, soulish kind of a track really good one and uh, then we went into I Found Out Too Late oh such a good such a good song and uh, such a favorite here uh, then we had you, you put one over on me That was on Fire and Fury That was uh, the most difficult Of all of the records to find We certainly don't have an original And 
Oh, I, I bet that uh, there's only a couple people who really do have one. It's a very rare and expensive record. It Were was, there any other records on Fire and Fury? That I don't know. Uh, but I know that that was just when they went Chapter 11, and I believe that that's a, a reason that the record is so rare. That record reminds me so much of Gina Washington's Puppet on a String. Just the um, the kind of like spooky, emotional kind of vacuum that it's in. Uh, Puppet on the string in that same kind of a spooky, uh, very lonely kind of a place. And Jackie certainly was there and certainly dragged every listener into that place where none of us want to be. Jackie was a soul singer. Uh, who just happened to be early on in with the vocal groups. You know, kind of like Nathaniel Mayer was at Fortune, where, you know, he was really, um, he was really cutting uh, new ground there uh, with his very emotional and direct delivery. Uh, I still remember just such a killer tune. We know that he ended in a sad way, and... um, Certainly well before his time, like many artists, but with him, you know, there's something f- super special about Jackie and the Starlights. Look, we listened to that that first song, the unreleased track off of the Relic album. Encourage you to get that, Jackie and the Starlights featuring Jackie Root. And then when we played, I found out too late, we played that off of a Scarce album on Sphere Sound. Yeah. The Codex versus the Starlights. So you get six of the Starlights and you get six of the Codex, who we also adore, worship over here. So look, we're going to let Mark take over and see what he has come up with.
Yeah, the Serenader is out of Detroit and tomorrow night on the JVB label from 1952. Before that, also from Detroit, the Pearls, Tree in the Meadow, and that was on Onyx. And we heard the Falcons, who I believe were also from Detroit. And this heart of mine on Lupine. The Rocketeers did My Reckless Heart. And that was on MJC originally, and it was later on Firefly, which is where we heard it from. And the shell started that set with Deep in My Heart on Johnson from 1962. Miriam, play us some records, please. I know you worship the Twin Hit label. <laughs> yes, I do. And here's the fabulous Madisons doing the fabulous Valerie. Hey, that's a tough record. It's the flip side of the Monterey's I'll Be Around. Both sides, really good.
place with that set oh yeah we started off uh, with uh madison's going at valerie jackie and the starlight's big hit that so many groups did cover madison's did quite an interesting chop there wailing through oh all of that heartache with a lot of screaming and uh emotion interesting but not as good i don't think oh nowhere near as good no but still uh there we go of the Madisons and if you get this record it's a great record on Twin Hit the <laughs> Monterey's on the flip side oh you'll like you that one too you get two hits on one record yeah, you get two hits on one record wow uh, yeah that's right what a bargain <laughs> it surely is and you follow that piece of uh, esoterica up with oh a legendary record daddy gonna tell you no lie the Cosmic Rays Sun Ra and his orchestra. Oh, those mentions of the record shop and the great, great vocal group antics in there just make that one of the 
greatest records of the genre, if I may say. You may say, but there's not a lot of songs that actually mention being in a record store. No, and they say it over and over again. Yes, I know. <laughs> it's so good. All right. After that, one of the, the great records that gained popularity thanks to Mad Mike uh, there in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Jungle Fever by the Grand Priest, which we have here on a couple labels. The Candy Label from Wilmington and the Groove Records, not the Groove, but a Golden Groove <laughs> Records. That's quite a psychedelic array of nonsense going on there <laughs> round and round. So it's a great, great record. Both sides are really good. But it's not a twin hit. It's not a twin hit, no. And of course, Jungle Fever is tops in the place that we call crashing the party now we wrapped up with the five letters so lonely look that may have been something that drove your fingers deep into your ears over there sir mark that wasn't bad no really wow i guess i've been completely you know deranging your brain cells with the music (laughs) (laughs) but uh look it was on broadcast and we're going into teener territory there you know even with the recitation and stuff like that there was a very thinly veiled notion that was going on there between the vocal group stuff and some of it went into soul but with a lot of the groups especially the white groups uh going into uh trying to trying to sound like Jackie and the Starlights or trying to sound like a lot of those groups and ending up sounding rather adenoidal and if that's a word that I can use here I never used it before but it has to do nicely with, done <laughs> thank you uh, but it's theater territory and it's not necessarily a bad place to be <laughs> Oh, 
someday, someway Da 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 da
and I've got plenty of love on the Tin Pan Alley record label out of New York City. And before that, we heard the Cats and I Don't Care No More on Federal. The Dukes did Cotton Picking Hands on Imperial from 1959 and they were from Oklahoma where the wind comes whipping down the plain. Does it really not? <laughs> yes, of course. All right. And Lester Robertson and the Upsetters and I think that's the Upsetters band that backed up Little Richard and a whole bunch of other people because that is definitely a New Orleans record. And a fantastic 
fantastic disc as well. Yes, called My Girl Across the Sea on the Montel label. And here we go with part two of our action-packed interview with Val Shively of R&B Records of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. You're listening to Crash in the Party. Let's go. My job was going to be go to the airport every morning uh, to National Airlines, which doesn't even exist anymore, I don't think. Pick up 100 cartons. Pick up 100 cartons. Um, you know, it's 50 cartons, 75 cartons, usually 100 cartons from Tone Distributors in Miami, Florida. You know who that was? Henry Stone. Oh, know? yeah. Okay. Henry was the biggest transshipper in the country. Yeah. You know, he was in a 2% market and he was doing 25% of the business. He was shipping everywhere he wasn't supposed to. So he was the guy we bought our records from. They cost him 40 cents a piece. We would sell them for like 48 cents with some places 46. But we, you know, we were, you know, and that was it. We were a wholesaler. And most of our accounts were black. So my job was, oh, okay, so this is, uh, here's the kind of guy Norman was. Norman says to me, okay, everywhere he took me, he took me, we, we didn't have a store, we didn't have nothing. We worked out of his apartment. He went to, he, 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 I'll never forget this. He takes me to this place called Williams One Stop that was on Broad Street. And he says to me, he says to the guys that own the place, okay, see this kid? Give him anything he wants. Treat him like he's family. Give him anything he wants and don't question anything. What's wow. your what, Wait a minute, hold on. What's your name again, kid? Val. I said, this guy's giving me the store, giving me the key, giving me everything. He don't even know who I am. But you know what? That was the kind of guy he was. And I just, I loved this. This was like, holy shit, this guy's fabulous. And then I became his guy. And my job was to do the records. And then I had to... Uh, deliver all over North Philadelphia and all were black, all black record shops. I was up on Columbia Avenue when it was burning, when they're shooting everybody. But that was my job. And I'm like, you know, I don't, you know, I just, you know, it was insane. But that's what I did. Uh, wow. I And I loved it. I loved, I didn't like it. I loved it because every time I went in one of these shops, I would say, you got any old records? You know, I'd be buying records from me. One time I went into this guy, you know, Milt's, crazy Milt's record shop. And uh, I remember there was a pile of like 60 records on top of, on the counter, just sitting there. And I said, what's this shit? And he says, they're returns, don't touch them. Well, it returns. I look at the top. It's uh, a false alarm by the Ravels on chess. Oh, it's all, you know, here, This Lonely Boy by the Limelighters on Gilco. You know, all these records that I didn't even know. I knew false alarm because of Blavitt. But I see they're all groups. It's all shit that's from the 50s. I said, nobody's going to take these records back. What are you, nuts? They're not returnable. And so he says, well, just don't touch them. And I said, I'll tell you what. I got a deal. See this order I just brought you? I'll trade you for that pile of shit. He goes, yeah, let's do it. So I come back to the store and, he, and Norman says, where's the money? I said, I don't have it. He goes, what do you mean you don't have it? I said, I got records. Don't pay me this week. You know, this kind of shit. That's wow. how we started. I don't, you know, I'll work for nothing. I got records I wanted. So that was what I was doing. I was having fun. And then, <laughs> and then here's what happened. So we would talk and he would take me out to dinner and, uh, you know, because I had no life. I had nobody in my life except by Times Square and my record and it's going to New York and shit like that. But, you know, whenever I could. And so, um, uh, that's where I met Louie, by the way, and all that, when I would go up to New York and, you know, I, I would write down people's names and I would I'd make connections with all these kids, kids that were in the store. And, um, so I would still, I would, this is 1964. Um, and then he said to me, what were you going to do with your life if you didn't meet me? And I said, I was going to be an accountant. I was going to be, I'm sorry, I was going to be a bookkeeper. He said, oh, really? You know how to do that shit? I said, yeah. He goes, great. You can do my books. 
Wow. <laughs> and guess what? I did him for the oh. same 50. Oh, he, by the way, he says, I want you to, you're going to give you $50 a week. And what are you doing with, you know, I said, I'm drawing unemployment. He goes, keep doing it. I said, no, 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 no. I, I said, all right, I'll do it. And then my mother said, no, no, you don't do that shit. I wasn't, I didn't raise you that way. Tell him to give you more money. So he said, gave me $60 a week and I stopped the unemployment because, you know, I wasn't raised that way. So. Anyway, so I became an accountant. And then I remember Herman's Hermits was real, real hot. And we couldn't get MGM records. I know you don't want to hear about Herman's Hermits. No. So he says, <laughs> you got to go up to New York. I got a guy that's going to be 10,000 copies of either Mrs. Brown or, you know, whatever this piece of shit was. So uh, I had to go to Long Island one Saturday night in the middle of the night. I got up to the, I went to a diner or something. This guy's got... I filled the whole car up with Mrs. Brown you got a lovely daughter or whatever one of them things and brought them all back the next Monday I come in with 10,000 records my whole car is, it, it, MGM had little boxes those the 100 count boxes from MGM were little tiny loafs they weren't the normal size boxes so I remember bringing them all in and he goes you know thanks good job well, you know, I just spent money to go up there and all he goes you know I mean I think he probably said here's $10 and I said don't worry about it it's my job so Anyway, I, I, I just did whatever. And then we hired, then we got so busy. We were starting to do business. And a couple of things happened. We were working out of his basement. Uh, I'm sorry, out of his, uh, yeah, the basement of his duplex. And the lady below him owned the building, owned, the, owned it. And she was always doing wash every day. And she didn't have a dryer. So she would hang the wash up where our records were. And so I would bring the records in and I'd be breaking them down. You got 200 of this Ray Charles record. You got 300 Motown records. You got this. And, that. and then I got to pull the orders. And they're all records. They're so soaking wet. They're all dripping on them. Oh, no. So I said, this is really bad. You know, I had tried to move them, but there was wash everywhere. This woman was always doing wash. So he's, I said, this is not working. So he, he ends up, he said, we're going to get a place. Don't worry. So we got a place at 6213 Lebanon Avenue. It's probably $50 a month, a little dumpy shithole. And so that's where we worked out of. And uh, then we hired a, a, a kid from North Philly. Somehow he found this guy and his name was Nestor, Nestor Garcia. And he was first our first employee. And this guy was really bad. Uh, you know, I, he, I, he delivered, but he really was supposed to pick orders and he didn't know what he was doing. And so I said to him, uh, you got to get rid of this kid. And he goes, why? I said, because he doesn't do a friggin' thing. I'm doing all the work. You know, he's, I mean, he's a nice kid, but you know, you got to do better than this kid. I mean, he ain't doing nothing. He doubled my workload. I never asked for any more money. I just, you know, thought I was like family. And so he said, well, he's not bothering me. So you want to get rid of him? You fire him. I said, I didn't hire him. He goes, well, fire him. So I had to let him go. And he goes, you find somebody. So somehow we found somebody else. And, you know, now I was the hirer or firer. And then, you know, he would always go to Vegas. And so uh, he was never there. It was always me. And it was uh, 24 hours a day. I had the keys to the place. And then uh, I remember one time I was working. Well, there's a million stories. They broke into the place one night. And who gets a phone call? Me. I had to go there. They had to board up the windows and they ripped the screen off it you know and all kinds of shit everything was you know i had it all on my shoulders he was never there but i liked it it was fun and then what happened was i was still going to Times square and in 1965 slim went out of business and now what are we going to do this was our this is our haunt this is where everybody loved it i mean this is where I, this is what i live for to get the records and all this shit so now what 
One of the guys I used to buy records from, his name was Mike Adler. He had a, a mail order business, and Slim was a retail store slash mail order business. You know, he wholesaled records for 60 cents a piece. You know, and that's what I did. When, you know, it was everything was, you didn't have to buy have a store. You just had to buy some records. They were 60 cents if you bought like five of them. So this guy, Mike Adler, used to buy them. And, you know, I mean, he was selling records, and I found him. And you know what I used to do? I would, he would buy loads. He bought collections. And I, he would say, Val, I just got some really good records in. So I'd drive up to his house, and I would see all these records. I said, oh, shit, I got to have these records. So he would give, here's what happens. I would buy 100 records, whatever, and it would be $1,000. I didn't have $1,000. I made $50 a week, 60 whatever. And my car, to keep it running, was $25 a week because it was always breaking down because I was putting insane amounts of mileage on my car. I had no life. So he, here's what he did. He said, give me checks, and my mother will you know, make them good. So I got friendly with his mom. I gave him, I remember one time, $110 checks and no dates on them. And she called me every Friday to see if she could put one in. So that was my beginning of getting nuts and all this other shit. And this is around 1960, oh, <laughs> 1964 is when I got into labels. Somehow the records, I had them, I had all these great records, but I guess there were some you couldn't get on anything but the original labels. I was aware of that and I was aware that they're more expensive. And now I decide, you know what, I think I want original labels. I know they're going to cost a little more, but you know, I think that's where I want to go. And that's where I went. And I started to, you know, care about labels. And, and that's a sickness and all that. But you know what? It, it affects a lot of people. It's so much better if you can only collect the music. I love the music. I played it more when I didn't give a shit. But you know what? It's all part of what happens. And, and I started to get more into the earlier records that I thought were crap. You know, the stuff, I used to take things up, like Come to Me Darling by the Crystals on Luna. I found a lot of that record in Philly. Slim gave me a $2 for it. You know, and then I would go in the store five minutes later, and it's on the wall for $12. I said, yo, Slim, you give me $2 and it's up for 12 He goes, that's not your copy. That's That's been up there. I said, you're full of shit. It just went up there. You know, and this is what we did. You know, that's the kind of crap that went on. Anyway, Mike Adler was my source you know for a long time and when slim went out oh and by the way that's where i bought my first record for a lot of money i bought thir for 30 dollars. there's a picture that's around of me holding a copy of miss you by the crows on rama i bought it in 64 maybe 65 
That, that really became my most important record because it was $30, which is not good. Now we're getting into the trophy mentality. So, okay. So, but he, well, Mike was, Mike Adler was friendly with Slim. He would go up there and fool with him. He bought Slim's mailing list. So he started to really do good business. And I was wholesaling to him because I would go to Kentucky to see my mom, find all these records for 10 cents, give them to him for a buck for credit. The same thing I used to do with Slim. I mean, quantity. I found quantity on things like the students on note. I found quantity on those because I would, in Cincinnati, where the record was, that's where it was. In 62, you know, that was my favorite record. And and at the time, and and the guy, Jared Weinstein from from, uh, Record Museum said, Kim America Kid, I'm going to show you something. Here's a record you'll never own. And he pulls out the students every day of the week on note. I said, what's that? He goes, that's the original label before Checker, before anything. I always remembered that, but I said, he goes, you'll never own this. The record's impossible. So that's, when you say impossible to me, that's what's, you know, makes me, I'll get it. You know, I'll find it somehow. So that's what all this is. It's, it's, (laughs) I hate to say it, it's the hunt.
when Slim went out in January of 66, I did I did my first list. Oh, yeah. So I, I started doing lists in 1966. My first list was two pages, and, you know, it was just... I live with it. Now I live with Jack Strong's family because I lived... I, I lived... They threw me out. The people, the people where I li- originally lived said, we didn't adopt you. You got to go. You know, we, we you weren't here for the rest of your life. This is a family. We you know we, we took you in, but so I got I had my first apartment, and then I ended up I had a girlfriend, and we broke up, and I was you know in bad shape mentally. So they Jack's mother, who I loved, said, "Come live with us, you know, till you get better." And all. So well, I wait, wait, there. wait. Was What's Jack that? already in groups? Jack and was already in groups, and, he was and one we of had your already cut and... the clock by the contenders. Oh. That was also something we did. We went favorite one day, record. Okay, here's what happened with that. So I got the whole group. I'm taking the group. The 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 guys. They weren't the contenders, and they were they were just. They didn't have a name. I don't think. I name that came from. I looked through my record collection, and the is it? Uh, I'm sorry. The Saxons on Contender is where that all came from. Oh, no okay. So um, I, I was looking for a name for a group, and here's what happened. We're driving. I'm driving them up to New York. It was the four of them, and they were all sang- singers. And Jack says. This is good. Jack says, I got an idea for a song. And so I'm just driving. I don't sing. So uh, he says, all right, look, it's, here's the story. You do, you, here's what I want you to do. And Jack's so talented when it comes to this. He's got them all. He's teaching them the lyrics. He's teaching them what they should do, the background, whatever. And it, it's the clock. And so it's, uh, you know, boom, 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 boom. Okay, Jack's the bass and he's the lead. Next time you listen to the record, he's all over the place. Wow. But uh, he's the bass and the lead. So uh, he teaches them the song. By the time we get to New York, two hours, two and a half hours later, because I never took the turnpike, we couldn't afford it. We took Route 1. So um, <laughs> that was more records we could have gotten. So we go, into, <laughs> we go into Slim, we go into Times, and guess what? He's on the radio live. This is a Saturday afternoon, and he's on the radio live, and we walk in, and we go, and we had already had the lightations thing, was already on times, and he goes, and, and I said, Slim, we got a new record, you got a new record, he goes, what is it, I, where is it, I said, no, no, where is it, it was just born, it's not even, it's an hour, it's not even an hour old, he oh, goes, man. sing it on the air, this is funny, sing it, so they sang it on the air, and you'll never believe this, somebody taped it that day. And it's available. I have a CD of that. There's an actual CD wow. of them singing that. Now, they were, t- 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 as far as Slim was concerned, they were the Lightations. And the phones lit up, and the people said, we want that record. And Slim says, we'll have it out in a month or two. It was going to be, and that was acapella and all this shit, which was what was going on then. So I jump in, and I go, yo, Slim, when are you going to pay us for the last one? He goes, I gave you five copies. I said, yeah, thanks. Um I said, well, guess what? You ain't getting this one. So that's when Jack, I said to Jack, we gotta, we're going to do this ourselves. I don't know how to make a record, but we're going to make this. You know what you're doing for sure. I don't. But I know how to, I'll make phone calls. I'll figure out how you do it. So we put the record out on Java label, which is Jack, J-A, and oh, Val. No. Java, v- Jack, and Val. And, Val, I and, never knew that. Well, now you are. I something. never knew that. Yeah. And then we put. I got it in the. I have it in the car yeah, yeah. because I brought those. Okay. I brought okay. the yeah. stuff along. Okay, and so uh, <laughs> that was in. That was actually made in in 1965, and it came out in January '66, and it lingered for most of the year. That's that crazy. record, all of a sudden, I I, I became like the promo promo guy. I actually painted on the side of my car contenders. I would do record hops. I would do, take them everywhere. They were on television. They were, you know, we. 
tried to get that thing broken, and I have one real big regret. And that's this. A guy called me one day, and I was a little cocky guy. It was, it was such a humor, but I always had a little, I guess, attitude or whatever. I learned it from the, you know, the the, the New York guys. Um, guy called up one day and he goes, "Who's the owner of this record?" I said, "I am." Actually, Jack and I. And so he says, "I want to buy the record." And I said, "Well, go to the store and buy one." And he goes, "No, I want to own it, you asshole." And so I said, "Really? Well, guess what? You can't. I we own it, and you ain't getting it." And I said, "You know." He goes, "This is Fred DeCipio." Well, Fred DeCipio went on to become a very famous guy in the record business. You know, him and Joe Isgro controlled the record business later in life. But at the time, he was just starting out. You know what? I should have given him the record. He probably would have made it a hit. Would we have gotten any money? Absolutely nothing. However, people would know the record better than they do. The reason you guys know the record is because somehow somebody in New York was that, that was involved with CBS FM lived in Philadelphia or worked in Philadelphia when I was banging my head against the wall. I got blab at the plate. I had it on black radio, but I couldn't get it on Wibbage or any of those other stations. But I had two distributors. I, I, I gave it to two distributors, which is a no-no, but I figured I knew all these people. I'll just, they won't know that I'm giving it to both of them. Let them somebody's going to sell it. Somebody will help me. It was like, <laughs> they didn't pay me anyway. So it was. I had two distributors working on the record. The whole thing, nothing ever came of it. We pressed, I think, 2,000 of the record. Maybe initially definitely 1,000. Then we back and made 2,000. I mean, one more 1,000, and that was the end. And then it got reissued. So it and really- what a great it, record in every possible Thank you. Way. So here's what happened. CBS FM in the 70s, in the 80s, whatever, I don't know when they were on, 70s for sure, somebody up there knew that, that they thought that was a hit record in Philly because I used to get it air, airplay. I don't know, it wasn't a hit record, but they thought it was. And it got it, pro, it got programmed on CBS FM on like uh, almost daily. Wow. And that was, wow, that was really cool. So we reissued the record. Mike Ratio, uh, probably, uh, I ordered a thousand. He made his own thousand, and he I got instant distribution with him because he was selling all the stores. So, you know, I was getting screwed. But that's another story.
out these records with with jack you know mostly were demos and i changed it you know i'm now they're the contenders even though i was i had these acetates when they were the litations and there was five guys singing in the litations and they were they were whiter than than the other ones by the by the but by the 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 contenders by then we had the black i was turning them on the black music all over the place so they had they had a blacker edge to him you know with the uh, with the clock and all it was like he Jack loved the nutmegs and there were certain he loved the five satins that was his you know I remember he was crazy about the five satins but the nutmegs when he heard those acapella records by the nutmegs it when he went nuts over those things so and all these other guys like one of the guys in the group was you know Louis was a spaniel's nut everybody was into black black groups so I would just yeah, at night when, when I would go to bed I would just I always had a sense of humor, I guess. I would think, what, uh, you know, what, what can I, uh, I got changed names of the groups and all. So I was just fooling around. And I remember one time I saw this box of records, Long Fiber. It was a Long Fiber box company. It was, you know, it was they, they made boxes. That's I said, where wow. you got the label name? Yeah, Long Fiber. Wow, that's a neat label. I oh like that God. name. So <laughs> I put out records on Long Fiber by the contenders, but I called them the five scripts. Oh, I know. Here's what happened. This guy, Barry Rich, was a guy here in Philadelphia who screwed the shit out of me. He was a... You know, he was the worst. He was a big collector. He creamed my collection. He, I didn't know nothing. He, 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 he destroyed me, and I still deal with them. But you know, it's it was a learning lesson. Anyway, Barry, we had this. You know, he was always getting my stuff, and I, I really wanted to get him back. I didn't know how. So we cut this record. We we used to go to these people's houses and make these records on back porches and not in studios, and. Uh, and and so with this kid Billy Whitney and uh, he had a, a fancy tape recorder and they would do all these things and we'd put them out. I put them out. I remember one time we put it out on. Uh, the, this was the five scripts on script. Right. And I I wanted and Jack went and did the labels and I wasn't with him and he didn't tell the guy about the size of the print and it, it, it and we didn't have the money to redo it so we just pressed the record so we couldn't I couldn't afford to buy labels again which was probably ten dollars but it was stupid that I didn't but the record obviously was the printing on the title was ridiculously big because everybody talked about script orioles all the time so that's where the scripts came from the Uh script word script came from listening to people talk about jubilee script jubilee was always 
playing with names, okay? Hey. So I ended up, oh, I know. I made the record, the five scripts on script to screw Barry Rich because he always wanted something out of my collection. I didn't want to give him. So I took the first copy and beat the shit out of it, scratched it up. You know, it sounded old. It really, even when I took, when went into Master the Record, I remember I took it to Virtue Studios, which is the studio where they made all the soul records that these kids go crazy over today. Uh, you know, all the Kenny Gamble stuff, all the original Arctic records and the labels that the 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 Northern Soul people go crazy over. They were all, a lot of them were cut at Virtue Studios, and we used to go in there, and that was where I made all these records. And we would go in. We had to wait till these other guys were done, and then we come in. And I remember putting dirt on the tape to make it sound like it was going to really sound old. And the guy, <laughs> it, it, I, he puts the tape on, and you hear boom, bang, boom. It was like he goes, "Who the frick? What the my equipment?" And he's screaming at me. So uh, you know, I said, "Well, maybe it's a little dust storm." Dust, you. Assholes, you know. You look at my equipment, you know. I said, well, I don't know what happened, you know. I put, you know. So anyway, I mean, everything was a joke. Everything we did was like the guy couldn't. I said, so anyway, I I ended up calling. Oh, I know. So that came out as a five scripts, and then on script, and then I used to at night think about funny things and do things, and and one of the things I did was the we had a I had a recording of Jack an acapella thing that he wrote stormy weather now it's not the same stormy weather that the Arlen and whatever you know the standard one that everybody that and everybody's always been looking for stormy weather by the five sharps on jubilee which probably doesn't exist on a 45 um i came up with this idea you know what i got it i'm gonna call listen i'm gonna put this thing out the five stormy weather by the five shits instead of the five Sharps, the five shits. And I'll put on chance because that's the label everybody collects. So I, you know, I couldn't. So I remember taking it to where the place called Community Press that did all the labels for everybody. And I walk in and I go, uh, you know, I want you to make this label. And the guy looks at me and he goes, I'm going to, you think I'm going to make this here? I do all the majors. I'm going to do the shits, the five shits. Get the fuck out of here. And he threw me out. So. Anyway, I got Mike Rascio, who was bootlegging records at the time, said, I can do anything for you. So he made it on chance. He made the five shits and all that stuff. So I gave this record to, I acted like, I remember, I, I thought it was funny. I gave it to like Jonah Agra in Philadelphia. These are all disc jockeys that were on the radio that when I was a kid, they were popular. And I figured, I remember I had all their addresses and all. So um, <laughs> I remember going to, um, uh, yeah, I, mailing mailing them to him at the radio stations, and I remember hearing from other people. The guy was on the floor laughing when he saw the five shits. Well, I put on the label just as a joke, produced by Phil Spector, and you know I put down you know weird shit on the labels. You know people that didn't write them or Eddie Grice or anybody I know, just to make making everything was a joke. Uh, the five shits, formerly the Miracles, you know because the Miracles were popular. So uh, anyway, here's what happened. This guy jo uh, Joe Pecorero, who's still around. He had a radio show on WHB or some crazy thing in New York, but it was pretty popular with kids. Ronnie I later on was on that station and did that show, took over that show, I think. So anyway, here's what Joe says. He goes, you got the new record? You got a record out? And I, by this time, I think the that wasn't the first record I did with the Five Shits. I know the other one I think came first, the one on Lost Cause instead of Lost oh, Night. Oh yes. You know we made a joke about everybody collected in the beginning. Everybody got into Lost Night because that was the label that all this shit was on that was good. Yeah. So um, 
then later on we became we hated Lost Night that was like oldies 45 you know so we wanted the original labels so Lost Night was like please so I, I figured I, I came up with a label Lost Cause yeah. and you know it was a dog <laughs> dumb the label the lamppost had a lamp, the original yeah, label has a lamppost on it right. and, you know Lost Night and by the way I'll get tell you where you want the history of Lost Night you'll like this okay. it's very interesting you ready sure. Al Tromers there were four people that owned Lost Night in the beginning because they were for the four kids that found Moon Out Tonight you know everybody wanted that Jerry Green really went crazy when he heard that record and, he, and, and one of the kids that he ran with Johnny Esposito went to found a phone book a 1958 phone book looked up Planet Records because there was no Planet Records they couldn't find them and uh, they wanted he, he called up and he gets uh, and somebody answered the phone and he goes um, do you have copies of this record the guy goes yeah why do you want that he goes well we're kids that we want this we like that record so they went there this kid didn't have any money Joe, uh, Johnny Esposito, but Johnny, uh, Al Tromers, Jared Weinstein, and Jerry Green pull, pulled their lunch money together or whatever. Al was older. He was out of school. He wasn't eating no lunch. But anyway, those people put their money together. Actually, Johnny Esposito didn't have any money. However, since he found Planet, the Planet, Planet guy in a 58 phone book, and it, you know they had copies. So uh, they cut him in on it so the four of them put out this label Lost Night and Lost Night was created by Al Tromers and this was what it was After Hours was a big label that all the collectors wanted Dollface Dollface by the by the by the Vibranaires on After Hours with champagne glasses and all this kind of artwork on it well Lost Night was originally going to have all that those kind of glasses on it and this was what the terminology was 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 to mean this was Al Trombers told me you ready Lost Night was when you went out with a girl and you didn't get laid Oh, it was no. a lost night. It was night. a lost night. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> oh, man. All right. Okay, that's now. Funny. Okay, well, that's where it came from. Okay, now. Thank you so for the information. Saying, I, I have a question. Go ahead. So, um, would the the copies of There's a Moon Out Tonight on Old Town, would the, were those needle drops or did they come from a tape? They came from the master because oh, okay. they bought the master. Here's what happened. So, these kids... Go to the place. The guy says, how many do you want? He says, uh, how many do you have? He goes, well, you want to buy 100? So they bought 100 of them for $35. Take them to Slim. Slim gives them a dollar a piece for them. And they put it up for either two, three, four, five dollars. I don't even know. Guess what? The record sells out in a week or two. Right. They go back. And they go, give me another 100. And they're doing this on the side. Yeah. They're having fun. And... They did it three times. They go back the third time, I believe it's the third time, and there's only 35 copies left. So the guy, so uh, Jerry says to him, make more. He goes, I don't want to make more. I want to forget this record ever happened. Mm -hmm. You know, you kids like this record? Buy it. You want to buy the master? Pay me what I paid for it, and you can own the damn record. You can have your own record. You can press all you want. So they said, what do you want for it? Two hundred dollars. Oh boy! So that's when they pooled their money together. Yeah. And and Esposito didn't have any money, but Esposito's the guy who found this guy, so he has to be part of this. So they came up with the label Lost Night, and they probably pre they pressed someone. It was a pink label, and it was red plastic, 
and it was pretty, and there was no lamppost at the time, and they, and they made black wax, and then Jerry hustled it all over the place, and, you know, he was just a kid. It's like, uh, you know, 15 years old, 16 years old. He's taking it to ABC and all these other big stations in New York, and somehow it gets on Make It or Break It up against Angel Baby, and all of a sudden, the majors, you know, what's this record that they're playing? And, and it becomes a, a huge record, so it's like a Cinderella story. But um, why am I telling you this? Oh, I'm sure Slim, by the way, this is my theory with Jerry Green and, and, and Times Square Records. Slim already had a label out. He had In My Heart or Here In My Heart, which is the original, on Times Square by the Time Tones. And, you know, here is Jerry who works here, finds this record and sells it to Old Town. And, you know, they didn't get shit for it. They got screwed. And um, so lost not, oh, so I had, I had this label, Lost Cause, with the lamppost, only I broke the lamppost off and I had a dog taking a dump on the lamppost. That would be more, I, more my idea. That's what we thought of Lost Night at the time. I'm surprised I didn't get sued by Jerry Green. So, but I, then the first record I put out on there was Dream, one of the contenders, right? One, I'm sorry, one of the Litations records, yeah. which is Dreaming of You, and the other side the captions, was... Right? Now the, that that was the, they became the captions too, but that wasn't me. That was a guy, Bill Hamilton, that where Jack worked, he put it out. Uh, he, Ham Mill Trading Corporation, which is, it's on Ham Mill, which is Bill Hamilton, that he just hyphenated his name. Ham Mill, yeah. Yeah, so anyway, uh, I put out this record on Lost Cause, uh, and they didn't like it. Well, Jack was not happy, I don't think. I don't even know. I didn't ask him. I just put it out. Five shits, because I thought it was funny. So, anyway, put it out on Lost Cause. Probably made 300 copies. And uh, put down the, you know, oh, produced by all these famous people. And, you know, uh, uh, whatever. I just made it look like it was funny. You know, I didn't give a shit. It didn't mean anything. I could do anything I wanted on the label, because Mike would do anything. So, anyway, now, we got... Um, Okay, so then I did this five shits on Chance. Now, this guy, Joe Pecorero, that you guys forgot, but I remembered. Joey has this, store, has this show on New York on the radio on Sunday night, and so here's what he does. I, I mail him a copy. He goes, I'm going to play it on the radio. He goes, I, I don't, I'm not allowed to. I'm, I know I can't. He didn't tell me this, but I found out later. He went to his program director, who happened to love Phil Spector, and, you know, he says, listen, this is a brand new record. Can I play it? And he, and this is like in 70, I don't even remember when this was. It was probably around 70 or something like that. I'm guessing. Maybe 71, 72. All I know is he chose the program director and he looks at the, he goes, holy mackerel. He goes, Phil Spector produced this? And, and he, it's the five shits? Wow. This is unbelievable. I guess, let's do it. He goes, you can do it. You can say it. I guess if he thinks it's okay. So, go ahead. So, Joey goes on the radio. He was only on for like, you know, half a minute. He says, New York, you know, he, put, he, he says, I got a treat for you tonight. Here it is. And you hear it drip, drop, drip, drop, drippity drop. The record starts singing. I'm so you know, the record starts playing. Here's what happens. New York, boy, do we have a treat for you tonight. Here it is. The brand new record by the five shits. Well, the engineer didn't know any of this. It's a Catholic-owned radio station, and all of a sudden he hears shit. He cuts the station, he cuts it off, and he starts playing classical music. It's, you know, that was the end of that show. So... All of a sudden, it's like, what happened to Joe's show? Oh, he played this record by the five shits. I sold a lot of records that week. Um, 
in New York. <laughs> and uh, anyway, that's how that happened. And uh, blah, 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 blah. so then I put out a record. Then I took, then I was having fun with that. And then I decided, you know what? I got it. I'm going to call the group The Beatles. <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah, but I'm not going to put it on my label. I'm going to put it on some label out in California, get it away from here, just in case they come after me. And so uh, I put it out, The Girl I Love, and I wrote down, the, the, it was Jack's record. I mean, this is the Litations again. And, uh, you know, The Girl I Love, which I love that record. It's great. And, and so uh, this is Jack when he was a kid. He was probably 15 years old when he wrote that and, and sang it. So um, he, uh, I put it out and I called them the Beatles. And I wrote Macklin Publishing, which I'm going to make you think it's the Beatles. And I wrote Lemon, you know, instead of John Lennon, John, I wrote Jay Lemon, Lemon and McCartney, you know. And then, uh, you know, just for, and then I had I need to flip, and I put this record on the back that I we we made this when we were kids because Jerry Blavitt was so popular in this town. Oh yeah. We made a record in in Jack's bedroom. Jack was Jerry Blavitt, and I was Nat Siegel, his. Uh, his manager, and it was called For Yon Tuna Fish Only. Yeah. For Yon Tunas, because he always talked about the Yon Teenagers. Yon Teenagers. Well, this is Yon Tunas. And we were going to yeah. make an album, but we had no money. <laughs> Swimming the Chestnut Stream, you know, <laughs> instead of Chestnut Street. You know, and it was all about these mindless kids that would just bought anything he played. It was not a funny thing, but I mean, I, and it was about he makes millions of dollars. And I put this thing out. And I, you know, Jerry was not happy with it. I played it for him once when I first made it. I, I was friendly with Blavitt and still am. And I took it over to his house and he had these young, real young daughters. And, and I said, well, Jerry, I got to play you something. You're going to love it. And I put this thing on, which is mocking him. And he didn't think it was funny. But, little, but the girls were screaming, Daddy, Daddy, is that you? Listen, it's so funny what you're saying. You know, it was like, I mean, it was like you, how he's ripping everybody off and all this other shit. So, uh <laughs> It was not funny, but we loved it. So, um, on Quest. On Quest. No, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On Quest from California. They're probably still looking for that guy. So, uh, anyway. And then there's a Beatle book I wrote once. Listen, I, I, I once bought this book because somebody told me about it. It was a big book about the Beatles. And it was and it was like the Bible, the Beatle Bible or something. And there was a, ch a chapter in it said, no, they're not. And, you know, and so, you know, you go to that, and it's in here someplace, this is great, it's a chapter on all these records that we're trying to be, that we were, we're, we're going in on the coattails of the Beatles trying to have hit records, and it was like, you know, all bullshit. Number one record, it was The Girl I Love by the Beatles on Quest. This is such bullshit. This has nothing to do with the actual group. This is, and this is what it said, and I loved it. It said, this is such a piece of crap. It says that it was by, it's actually a group called the Five Shits that instead of the Beatles, a good name considering the quality of the disc. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, keep saying it. Jeez. And I remember Freddie Kaplan bought a hundred of them from me once and he took them to New York. I'm sorry, he took them to a Beatle convention in New York and he sold them as the Beatles. He got thrown out. They took him, him and the records and said, get the frig out of here. So that ain't the Beatles. Get out of <laughs> no here. No sense of humor. Yeah, exactly. Okay.
ended up making these lists. And then I said to my boss one day, listen, I don't like these people that are coming down here from New York. Remember, I used to go to New York all the time when I was a kid. Now they're coming down here on Saturdays and Sundays. What's Sunday? We were closed, but he let me. You know, I, I always had keys. And I asked him, I said, can I bring my records in here? I don't want them coming to my house. I don't. It wasn't my house. It was where I, at Jack's house. And so... Let me bring my, I only have 200 records. Can I bring them in the back? There's plenty of room back there. He goes, I don't give a shit what you do. You can do it. You bring them in. I don't care. Just as long as you work for me six hours, I'm sorry, eight hours a day, six days a week. I don't care. But you, if you can find more time to do anything else, do it. So uh, so I, that was my new home. And guess what? At night, I worked all night long. I had no life. And I did work, you know, I worked during the day for the one stop, the distributor. I'd go out and get a cheesesteak or a hoagie or whatever, hamburgers. I'm lucky I'm alive. That's all I ate was that horse shit. So, um, and then I'd come back and it would be, I'd be on the phone all night and I'd be getting phone calls from people all around. You know, I used, I used to write down, I ran and ran ads in the magazines in New York because by now, now it's the early 70s and here comes this phenomenon into New York. By the way, the whole thing died. The whole hobby died like in the late late 60s. It became very, very nothing. There was a handful of us that really loved this, but most of the kids, you know, the war was going on and, um, you know, the music was uh, drug-related. I'm not saying everybody was on drugs, but the Beatles and the you know, the Stones and Traffic and I, uh, Dylan, but Jack loved Bob Dylan and, you know, everybody was like going their own separate way and it wasn't about this shit because it really didn't mean anything it wasn't selling it didn't mean you know, and and so there was a handful of us that were, were keeping this alive you know there was the relic in new york I'm, I'm sorry in hackensack new jersey with don and, and eddie grice uh ronnie wasn't there yet with ronnie i but um louis was doing it in new york these two kids that uh bob campbell when he went in the service he met these two kids that were in a record shop that they he met and he told these kids about what was going on in new york and they came back here and and sold tons of records and then they started their own business that was henry and art mariano which was uh, rare records unlimited and lynn art enterprises and they were very aggressive they were my main competition in the 70s um and, you know, but we were friends. Uh, and let's see. Well, so there were stores. Pittsburgh had its own world. Boston had its own world. There were record shops. But most of the ones in New York were just selling, you know, you, you know the, the rock stuff. You know, all the, you know, like, I guess Lou Reed and all that kind of underground kind of stuff. Your stuff, <laughs> Miriam, your stuff. Ouch, ouch. I'm sorry. Don't pull my hair. I got none left. So anyway, all that rock stuff was big, which, which you know, it was fine, but it wasn't where I was. And I was always, you know, so, so here comes a phenomenon. You know what it was? A guy named Gus Gossard. You got it. Yeah. Gus Gossard. Gus Gossard comes into New York, I guess around 1970. I'm not sure exactly when, but... He comes in and I guess he's playing. He's on Picks or one of these stations, and he's playing oldies. He was like, he was on WCBS first, and then on okay, Picks. Okay, well, and he played normal records, normal oldies. I guess I don't know where right. he came from, Hawaii yeah. or California or something. So he didn't know this stuff. I mean, he was playing what normal people would play for oldies. And then all these guys that you that were around back at the times days, Wayne Sterling, Don, Eddie. Stan Krause, a kid named Chris Markow, 
you know, Louis. Just gonna, well, Louis too. I don't think Louis was in connected, but these guys got on. Louis, Louis obviously was part of was part of the music, but these other guys took it a step further. They called him up on the air, and they said, "We want to meet with you," and they met with him, and they said, "Listen, you could be huge." All you have to do is don't play that stuff. You can play a little bit of it, I guess, maybe. But we're going to tell you, you play this stuff and you'll explode in this city. Because this stuff in the early 60s, mid-60s was very, very big. And you could, you're could you on major station and you can really make a difference and watch what happens. And he didn't know the music, but they took him by hand and they fed him these things. And I guess we're up there at the station when he did this stuff. And you know what? It exploded, and here comes everybody wants this music. New York got hot, red hot, stage shows. Every, they put these people back out who were still alive. I mean, the whole thing exploded. All of a sudden, started doing tons and tons. Of, I was doing business like I couldn't handle between that and the one stop. And, you know, I mean, it was like unbelievable. And my catalog got bigger and thicker and everything. And it was like, you know, I was just an adventure that was amazing and then they would come to me not just me believe me they were going to relic they were going to all these other places and that's by the way ronnie i kicks in around 72 i left the one stop in 72 and tried to do this out of my house with just mail order i was there for two or three months uh and i never got dressed i never shaved I, it was like what am i doing i forgot about people and i love people even though you heard I didn't, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm famous for throwing everybody out of the store and, you know, yeah. do, do me a favor, go, please. So um, anyway, uh, okay, so I opened my store in, no, in November of 72 and I only wanted to sell doo-wop records. I don't only, I hate that word, by the way. I only wanted to sell group records like what I learned and what I liked, okay? That's all, nothing else. Uh, that didn't last long. Here's what happens. Every time a door opened up, and I put these stupid signs on the door, do not enter, and it doesn't matter if I have a sign. I could be in a cornfield. If I have something people want that's something special, they'll find, you. They'll find yeah. me. I know that because that's what I've done. I find, you know, I used to when I would travel and all, you take me to some place that nobody's ever been that has these kind of records, that's like I'm in heaven. There's a
Ladies and gentlemen, signed, sealed, delivered is this episode of Crashing the Party. Until next time, remember... God digs those doo-wops, man. Grab your pony, take a ride. All right, well, rock 